This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now, it's time to decentralize. I'd say we'll get things started then. Hello and welcome to this week's gathering of TGIF DCT here on Clubhouse as well as the Decentralized Podcast. For those of you that are joining us live here on Clubhouse, as you know, we do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, to cover a range of different topics related to decentralized clinical research, clinical research methods, and general strategies that can help make research more efficient, more accessible, more equitable for all stakeholders. In addition to the live gatherings we do here, which are a fabulous way to uh, contribute to the conversation, to jump on stage, to share your questions and insights. We also stream our recordings for folks that may be in the car, maybe in a different time zone, or just can't connect with us live through your favorite podcast platform. So if you're listening to us on um, on a podcast, be sure to give a follow, uh, a like, or whatever your platform has for a thumbs up because that way you'll be sure to get updates if we drop any additional content in between weeks. From the live recordings, uh, live events on Fridays, we usually drop new episodes by around Tuesday the following week. If you have a topic you'd love to see us cover, or if you'd like to jump on stage and be a guest with us, just like Gil, Ritesh, and Sarah this week, just drop a note to myself or Jane Miles, through email, through LinkedIn, through Twitter slash X, or you can always drop an email to secretariat at dtra.org and share the topic you'd love to see us cover, um, or if you'd like to be a co-host alongside. Jane, what did I forget? You forgot absolutely nothing, as usual. Perfect execution. Just a quick additional reminder for folks, um, be sure to click and check out the profiles and maybe give a follow to not only the fabulous speakers that are here with us today, but also check out who else is here in the room with you. They might be that next person able to help you solve that next challenge you're facing. Um, so check them out, not only here, but maybe drop in the LinkedIn or other social platforms give folks a follow there and um, they might be your next ally for your next challenge. Now, we've got some great content coming up in the weeks ahead. This week and next week, we're doing kind of a back-to-back -back on artificial intelligence and Gen AI. Next week, we'll have our friend Dirk Arts from Castor 
who always has interesting perspectives on these topics. This week, though, we are very fortunate to have uh, three friends joining us. We'll be uh, connecting today with uh, Gil and Ritesh, uh, Gil Bosch and Ritesh Patel from Finn Partners, as well as Sarah Schmachtenberg from Galen Growth. And I welcome all of you here with us today. Thanks so much for joining. Maybe, maybe we'll get started, Gil, with you. If you don't mind coming off mute for folks that haven't had the pleasure, who is Gil Bash and what is your connection to this week's topic? Wow, that's that's a loaded question because Gil Bash is still trying to figure Gil Bash out. But um, the, the title certainly on my LinkedIn page says that I am the chair of global health and purpose at Finn Partners, um, one of the, the world's largest independent communications agencies. But I also wear another hat, and it's probably that hat that's drawn me into this specific conversation today. And that's my hat as editor-in-chief of Medical Life, Medica with a K. And there I write extensively about AI-related issues. Um, I actually did the list of the top 20 folks in, in health AI to follow that I think will change the conversation. And I've been uh, an advisor and influencer with Microsoft with Tom Lowry on their AI-related program. So it's a topic I've been looking at, um, believe it or not, Craig, although it probably won't surprise you, for about 17 years since we started to talk about big data and then slowly but surely made the transition to machine learning. And then voila, it brings us to today. And uh, we should call out for folks that are interested, Medica Life, as you said, Medica with a K, that's Medica Life, Medica.life, is that right, Gil? That's right, Medica.life. It's, um, it's a digital health news platform. If uh, people here are interested in uh, exploring the platform and, and speaking to me about being authors on a topic, we always welcome that. We have uh, actually about anywhere depending on the year and the topics we're covering, but we, we can reach about a, million, about a million readers a year. Tremendous. Gil, it's great to have you here. Um, and uh, next on my little queue, I see our friend Ritesh Patel. Ritesh, you've been with us before, but take a moment, introduce yourself for folks that haven't had the pleasure and maybe a, a little bit of context for why are you here to talk about AI today? Well, I, I go wherever you told me to go, Craig, as you know. So when you said you should do this, I said, okay, I work at Finn Partners with, uh, with Gil. I uh, head up the digital health practice and we focus primarily on all things digital. My motto is if it moves, digitize it. Um, and we've been following all of this world around not just the original machine learning and artificial intelligence use maybe five, six years ago where it started to explode in R&D, but now as generative is taking on a lot more of the front stage, how is that going to impact what our pharma clients can do with it? So very much focused on the use cases now as opposed to you know, the futurist that Gil is. And Ritesh, there are a number of places that folks can find you on any given week, whether social or otherwise. What are some of the best ways to stay connected with the dynamic? Oh, gosh. So, you know, I've sort of abandoned uh, X. Uh, I used to be very active there, but uh, not as much anymore. I've adopted threads. So those of you who are on threads, you can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn. 
which is where I'm very, very active and uh, do a lot of posting and, and sort of sharing of, uh, of things that I find. Um, and then you can find me on a Wednesday evening uh, doing my weekly radio show of uh, classic soul, jazz and R&B at jfsr.co.uk. That's the stuff, and that's the what that gives us even more options to hear that lovely voice. And Sarah Schmachtenberg, it is a pleasure to meet you this week. Please come on off mute and introduce yourself for the audience, and in particular on today's topic. Thanks, Craig. Um, I am I'm a I'm the type of person who likes numbers, right? I'm a bit of an analytics nerd at heart, um, and so I'm here to talk a little bit about the numbers and the trends that. I've seen um, through my role in Galen Gross. Um, there I'm the head of research. Um, Galen Gross is, for those of you who don't know, the leader in digital health data intelligence and analytics. Um, we track all the startups globally in digital health, right? It's a fantastic place to be. And, um, and we follow what they do, collect data on them. And through that, we can pull together trends from the data and we, we help our clients understand what's going on. And so that's why um, I'm very excited to join you all tonight and and talk a little bit about those numbers that we have sarah to just to help folks for context when you're uh, mentioning tracking startups in digital health what what is digital health in in this context what are the tentacles or touch points of of digital health for the scope of your work that's a great question it's something that uh, we define in all of our reports because it's important but we we track pretty much all across the entire healthcare journey, right? From research um, in, in pharma companies through clinical trials, of course, and then the patient journey, um, and, and after the patient journey, collecting data from that patient, um, as well looking at, it, at payers, right? And hospitals and what they're doing in digital health and everything they do that, that collects data, that uses data um, to, to improve uh, people's health. So for our audience that may lean in or double click around clinical research, clinical trials, drug development, is that part of the digital health ecosystem in your mind or are we just kind of adjacent and borrow and repurpose different tools that may be a part of the digital health universe? Craig, those are core, core pieces in um, two of our 18 clusters that we use to classify digital health, one being clinical trials, um, including decentralized clinical trials, right, the data collection tools that are used, and then, of course, the other one being research solutions, right, uh, drug discovery, bioinformatics. Um, those are very core topics um, for digital health for us. Outstanding. You know, it's, it's um, the reason I ask is, you know, there's some amazing things happening in, in healthcare and across all of its many um, branches. Um, sometimes it feels like we in the clinical research space are just kind of borrowing or repurposing things as compared to, you know, really being a core, uh, a core voice, a core use case. You know, we're so B2B in this clinical research space. And uh, I guess many in the digital health space more broadly are as well. It's not all about, you know, consumer and patient facing, is it? Well, I mean, I think digital health started a lot focusing on the patient because they're the ones who are used to using the tools. But now we're realizing there's so much that can be done to improve efficiency, right, in research, in clinical trials, through using the, the digital tools, right, 
people are used to using them, right? But these corporations have to start getting comfortable with understanding, okay, we're gonna get data, we have to analyze the data and, and use that to our benefit, right? To improve efficiency, to, to really get to the core of, of what we um, know about health. Gil, did I see you wanted to jump in on that last thread? Yeah, you know, I just wanted to circle back with you and Sarah on this because <clears throat> I think, you know, I always find that um, things, um, events force issues. And I think one of the events that's forcing the issue is certainly the history we've had with, with COVID and the vulnerability to clinical trials or site-based clinical trials, which have uh, led, us, led us to really look beyond how uh, clinical trial development and execution has historically operated. That's one component. But another really key component, I think, that drives this conversation in AI is, is the fact that the Food and Drug Administration, from a policy standpoint, is really looking to companies now on real-world evidence. And um, probably one of the best ways to do that is through you know, patient engagement, obviously, and creating platforms or health information systems, digital, as, as Ritesh would say, is being, you know, if it moves, digitize it, and people move, and we're digitizing them through different systems. So I, I would say, one, we realize the vulnerability of the system. Two, we realize that the one of the vulnerabilities is we're not bringing enough patients into the system. And three, the FDA is saying, you know, it's one thing to approve a medication or a, a medical device for use, but we need to really understand how that medicine, how that device is going to operate in a real world environment. And, and I think that's forcing some of the issue of both to Sarah's point, uh, digital health, which you know, I'll say health information falls within that big, big umbrella. And the other aspect is, okay, we're getting a lot of data and we now have the ability to scrape it, study it and apply it, bring in Gen AI and AI and ChatGPT. Ritesh, as you're hearing uh, these uh, initial thoughts, I'm curious, the, um, the use cases that you believe are getting momentum today, in particular on the life sciences and, and clinical research side, are we, are we really leaned in on back office use of AI? Um, automation of a discrete process or an analytics tool for decision making as compared with those AI use cases that require um, maybe a lot more buy-in with investigators and others like digital endpoints and modernizing a lot of how we're measuring change with patients. Um, I just am curious when it comes to the adoption of some of these approaches, is it equitable across all the use cases or do some feel like they're getting a little more attention and momentum right now? You know, some guess it's a great point. I think we get all excited about it. We've, you know, lots of people have come out with things like, you know, we'll ingest your data. We'll look at large language models to interrogate large data sets and give you great guidance and give you the, you know, the ultimate patient that can be enrolled and consented quickly uh, is not the case. I think where we are at the moment is the basics around mundane things like um, managing day-to-day -day, uh, events. 
can I use conversational AI and generative to remind somebody that they have a checkup coming? Uh, you know, things that could avoid a protocol deviation work very well, right? Uh, sending automated messages out to people a la when we go to the hospital now, you know, Press Gainey will send you a message after you've been to say, rate your doctor, right? Or you get the text message before your appointment that says, go fill this out. Some of those things are now being applied at the operational level. So the CRAs become more efficient, right? They don't have to remember to do things that can all be preset. Areas where I'm seeing things like um, education, um, looking at ways to convert a consent form into different languages very quickly. You know, before you'd have to hire a bunch Jane, is it just me, or uh, did audio drop there? Yeah, I think that I think that Ritesh saw something on the stove. But I, would you mind, Craig, if I pick up a little bit from what Ritesh was just saying? Can you not hear me? Sorry, oh, we could not. Okay, back to you, Ritesh. We could not oh, hear you for the last few moments. You were well, on mute. You know, you just missed the most profound thing I just said for the last 40, uh, 45 seconds. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was just talking about where you could take a consent form and convert it into different languages. I'm seeing a lot of that being happen, right? So I can take an English consent form and convert it to Japanese or Korean or Hindi or Chinese or Mandarin or Cantonese very, very fast. Um, you, so those basic many, the little things that help me become more efficient as a CRA at the, at the site level. And then, at, you know, broader, we're seeing use cases around identification of patients in the electronic medical record systems, where before you'd have to install a whole bunch of machines on that side of the firewall and IT would stand in your way. Now you don't have to do that. You can interrogate the de-identified data very, very quickly and find people who meet a criteria, inclusion, exclusion criteria, very, very fast. I've seen it at three academic centers now where they're doing that. And the you in that case, Ritesh, just to be really clear, is the investigative site or the physician who is attached to that individual? Is that That's correct? That's correct. That's absolutely right. And I'm calling that out because I think um, there are still some limitations and norms around these tools. I love what they're doing. And there are some proposed appropriate use cases and some things that are a little out of bounds, which is why I dropped in the chat. I'd really love to hear from you if you have thoughts and perspectives on some of those, I'm going to say rules of the road that are coming forward around the use of AI specifically in healthcare slash clinical trials. Jane, one thing I'd, I'd add is, you know, it's a, the the ability to take the complex and summarize it in a way that helps, right? So I usually, I showcase now and again how some of these new tools can take a 60-page protocol and summarize it for API. So if you're going to go enlist a PI, you don't have to get them to read all 60 pages. In one page, you can summarize the entire you know, protocol or whatever it is. You can do the same for patients, where you can summarize uh, a protocol for patient language, you know, fifth grade level. These prompts are really good for doing things like that, 
which are very, very helpful tools in the complex scientific world we live in. How do we distill it and make it more, you know, usable or more user friendly, depending on the audience? Right. And those summaries that are patient facing would, I mean, unless the patient was generating that summary on his or her own, which they might do, if it was being provided to them as part of the formal study documentation, that still is subject to the regular ethics approval. Um, and I'm only calling that out because we had quite an involved conversation around that early fall in the year, like how does AI generated material fit into the lens of ethics and are our ethics boards ready to review it and understand how it will be used? Jane, yeah. uh, Go on, Gil. Oh, thank you, Ritesh. No, Jane, th that, that question is important and disturbing at the same time. And uh, you know, we see this certainly in terms of the continued use of fax machines at health systems. You know, we, we, we pledge to get rid of the fax machine, right? And send it to the, uh, uh, to the, the uh, tech, tech graveyard. And yet there's still the predominant way that hospital systems, physicians to physicians, and even physicians to patients are communicating. And, you know, I always believe that actually this is the case of the limitation of technology and the limitation of humanity. Culture crushes innovation. And the reality is becoming with AI, Gen AI, ChatGPT, that the technologies have great potential and uh, humanity has to come to grips with its own um, inequities, its inabilities to, to actually get its arms around the technology. The question you put in the chat is an important question. Because here's where I actually think that our, our cognitive ability to recognize what is broken and what needs to be fixed. And I worry, I worry when I see uh, hospital systems say, gee, if we begin to perfect AI systems in our hospital, our providers can see X many more patients per day. I don't think that's the intent of the technology. I think the, te the, te the intent of the technology is actually to get to know the patients even better so that we can serve their interests better. That's the goal. That's the goal of the technology. But that's not the thinking process necessarily of the system. When it comes to clinical trials um, and, and tools of that nature, the, the, the reality is people are suffering. You know, despair, disease is limitless. Um, un, unchecked despair disease leads to death. And I think we have to deploy these technologies wisely with co cognitive sophistication so that we, we start to map out what patients would truly benefit through conversation with their physician about looking at um, other therapeutic alternatives and yes, the potential of participating in a, in a clinical trial. So I do think of that, and I do think, and I think Ritesh and Sarah, you and Craig should weigh in here. When we think of EMRs, we, we tend to think of them as a book, a readable book, but the reality is they're anything but. And Ritesh, maybe you'll, you'll recount that funny post you made on Twitter yesterday about you know, the training of Epic in a hospital system, but, but we need AI to actually help the health professionals in the system um, better understand the patient in front of them because the EMR 
does capture a ton of data. The question is if, if that ton of data is accessible to the people who need it the most. Let's keep this conversation going and, and then we'll open it up in just another moment for questions or perspective from our guests here in the room with us. You know, there are a lot of leans we can take here, whether it's around the use cases, the challenges of adoption, the needs of governance and oversight, the desired outcomes that we're looking to achieve, whether it's role replacement, role augmentation, and um, the fears people may have. But Sarah, you also dropped a clue earlier in your introduction about some data and trends that you've been tracking and gathering around the space. And I wonder if there are a couple of highlights that jump to your mind based on the conversation you've heard so far in terms of what data you've seen and some of the clues that may be there. Yeah, Craig, that's, um, that's kind of where I wanted to go. And, and Gil kind of inspired me with his comments because he's absolutely right. Um, let's look quickly the distribution of partnerships like we we understand again goes we kind of look at how the date how the technology is coming into the market looking at partnerships who are these ventures partnering with because a startup can't do it themselves right they need a partner um and and looking at the distribution of partnerships the top cluster digital health cluster the top top um use is in health management systems right so um, oh, sorry, the top, it's, it's tied, medical diagnostics and health management solutions. Health management solutions are the IT backbones of, of hospitals and clinics, right? Um, has a lot to do with um, not only the EMR, but also the, the medical claims processing, right? And, um, and helping uh, handle, the, handle the patient records. Medical diagnostics is clear with, uh, with AI, how that's helping identify the, the right places for the doctors to look. So those are the two that tied for first. The third is the patient solution, right? So we're not quite there yet. What Gil was talking about, about the um, really helping the patient directly. We are helping the physician, right? At this moment um, to understand the patient better, right? And so those are the really the top three areas in digital health where we're seeing AI being used. Now let's, from another point of view, look at who who's using it, right? The top user, the top partner for digital health ventures using AI are health systems. Clearly 19% health systems are partnering with um, digital health startups using AI, right? Second are is venture to venture partnerships. Um, so those are kind of building the platforms because there's a lot of point solution tiredness going on. And then the third is biopharma, right? So that's where you're talking about uh, a lot. There's a lot going on with AI in pharma biotech companies with the clinical trials, with the research, but the top is still health, health systems. They're addressing those inefficiencies they see using AI. A few points to, to think about as we move forward. Great perspective and great to hear these uh, compartments because the universe can feel truly vast and uh, certainly overwhelming. Why don't we um, take this as a moment just to regroup, reset a bit, and then we'll open up the room for questions, perspectives from folks in the audience with us. If you are here with us live, welcome. Uh, you might have joined in the last couple of minutes. It's time for TGIF DCT. We gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern time on Clubhouse. You can always give a follow to the Decentralized Trials Club by clicking Decentralized Trials in the top left corner in the app. 
It'll give you a little prompt, a little nudge every Friday when it's time to regroup here. If you're listening to us through your favorite podcast platform, that's awesome. Be sure to follow us there. But always remember, you could join us live on Fridays, and it's always great to hear the questions and perspectives from folks in our audience. If there's a topic you'd love to see us cover, remember, drop an email to secretariat at dtra.org, or feel free to reach out to Jane Miles or myself through, uh, through LinkedIn or other messaging platforms this week and next week, actually, a back-to-back week of AI in clinical trials and healthcare. What are some of the trends? What are some of the uh, key use cases? What are some of the categories that people are going after? What are some of the adoption and implementation challenges? What are some of the governance and oversight tools that we need to have in place? So many directions for this conversation to flow. What's on your mind? Feel free to use the little, uh, what is it now for the icon? It used to be sort of a hand raising. Now it kind of looks like a person with a plus in their uh, on their shirt. Well, if you're on Clubhouse, hit that button in the lower right and feel free to jump on stage and share the topics and questions on your mind. Jane, based on the conversation you've heard so far, what are the questions that are top of mind for you? There's so many directions we can bowl. So we've talked a lot about how this can help physicians and that's a really good direction to go. I'd like to hear a little bit more from anyone, our our special guests or the audience members on how they're applying or seeing the application of AI to help study teams. And I can think of a few use cases I've heard about, but I'm very curious to hear from the audience. Where are you at with this? How have you started to explore? Or are you getting any uh, resistance to using these methods as a study team member? Great question. And by study team, do you mean specifically at a research site or do you mean the team more broadly inclusive of those CRAs that Ritesh was mentioning, the sponsor and CRO teams as well? I'll go with both. It's an and. Like how are sites using the tools if they are and how might the folks at CROs and pharma biotechs be using them? It's a great question, especially where we see um, resource constraints, staffing uh, barriers being a, a significant remaining challenge for research sites today coming out of the out of the pandemic. Um, could these tools be a source of relief for overworked and under-resourced sites or can they possibly even see a path to using them given the perception that new technology itself is often viewed as burdensome? Sarah? Um, just wanted to, to answer Jane's question a little bit because, like I said, we um, we work with and we talk to a lot of, of startups in the area. Two areas that I've seen often come up um, within the clinical trials cluster is, is, first of all, writing protocols, right? Understand Using the AI to understand what has been most successful, right, in other protocols and then teaching the, teaching the algorithms with those and helping it to, to write the protocols. And the other one has um, popped up recently here in Basel. We had uh, an accelerator and two of the two of the startup companies in the accelerator were actually focused on 
analyzing, using AI to analyze the, the data during the clinical trial and, and being able to stop the trial early in case there was indication that it wasn't going to be successful. Um, kind of a makes me think, wow, that's a lot of money to just stop a trial. You got to be really confident. But on the other hand, um, continuing a clinical trial when, it, when uh, the outcome doesn't look good perhaps also doesn't make sense. So it's really making that efficiency a little bit higher um, in order to, to increase your chances of success or, or fail fast. Um, so those are two areas that I've seen um, to answer Jane's question directly. Well, thank you, Sarah. That's really helpful. And I, I actually love the fail fast, stop as soon as you can use case, not because I want things to fail, but because it limits exposure of patients to something that might not be helpful or might even have safety concerns. So that's a win in my books. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alex in the chat, I think, talked about um, the the lack of participation in decentralized clinical trials, and that might help, right? If you know, hey, it's going to be stopped as soon as they, they know it not, it's not going to work, it's, it's motivation. Right. And the other question I had just digging in a little bit on uh, protocol writing, let's let's talk about that a little bit, because what protocols are they comparing or using as they're creating their own learning model? Um, my understanding is the ones that uh, from other companies that have been submitted to the FDA and approved. Um, or submitted to the, any ethics committee or, or those types of bodies, right? The ones that, that have actually been um, approved for, for use. Um, so it's really on, on getting the clinical trial approved um, because I'm not sure how they would understand which, one, which protocols were most successful in the ah, trial itself. That, thank you for that, because that's where I was going. It's like, wait, those, are, <laughs> those documents are usually not that publicly available. So th right. that makes sense. So it's more yeah. of a regulatory strategy and scientific question assessment than uh, what words were used in which document. That's my understanding, correct. Okay, got it. That's so helpful. Thank you. One area that I've seen people now starting to attack is feasibility, right? You know, we've been doing the same feasibility studies the same way for so many years. It's either the same usual suspect sites that we go to because we worked with them before, or we get some additional data set. But what I'm now seeing is people coming out with tools because of the way you can use large language models that you can add a large set of data over and above what you already have. So claims data to see how many patients are at a particular site. So if you're going to go see UPMC, you can figure out fairly quickly that you know they don't have the amount of patients you may possibly need as a PI uh, in that system for whatever protocol you're trying to do. So, you know, take your existing data set on feasibility that you're using, add things like claims data, add things like population data. You can do a bunch of stuff by pointing a large language model to data sets to then create uh, a new set of investigations in natural language to really hone in on how you can do feasibility better. So I'm seeing companies now looking at that use case and saying, what data sets do we need to point to to give somebody who's in the world of feasibility a better chance of finding those PIs that can actually execute on my trial?
what an interesting question to raise here, right? Because um, certainly, so let's pull this thread, right? Um, there aren't uh, uh, sometimes enough uh, patients at a given site. We have sites that are over uh, and beyond capacity, not able to take on new trials. And so how can we use AI to help support the decision of where new sites are needed? And Ritesh was the yes and, how can we then use AI enabling tools perhaps to help with newer investigators, uh, investigators that may need additional tools and support to help them to be a high quality, high performing site as a, as a newer site. How do AI tools have the potential to help them in their performance and to help give sponsors and CRO teams more confidence with perhaps working with a, a newer, earlier, more quote, research naive investigator? Exactly. So imagine, right, take your existing trials that you've done as a sponsor. You can then go look out at a research gate or any of those things uh, to look at the publications. You could then look at the academic centers that you've worked with before. You can get claims data in of patients uh, and put those in. And now you've got an interesting sets of data that you can query using a large language model to say, okay, wh which ones make sense for this protocol? Fabulous. I see we have uh, a first guest from the audience, Moani Shanan. It is fabulous to have you here. For folks that have not had the pleasure, would you mind introducing yourself and then sharing question or perspective on the topic? Absolutely, I hope you can hear me all right. Yes, we can. Thanks, I'm Monish. Um, been with um, been with Pfizer for a long time, and I've worked in different areas, including feasibility for for a while. But my, my, so before I comment on 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 the application of machine learning AI to feasibility, in in the previous segment when we were talking about the protocols, I was wondering, like, of all the things and all the areas we're talking about in clinical trials. Where, are, where do we have data sets that are robust enough and large enough for us to be able to test and train? Because AI models were not robust enough, you know, tend to build in their bias very quickly. So, if, in, especially as you're talking about protocol, I was wondering, you know, if, if the data sets out there are robust enough for, for us to build algorithms that, that we can train and test them. Uh, and feasibility does seem to be the one area where probably you have large enough data sets um, that would help a lot with the decentralized component and other things along those lines. But you know, I'm wondering like areas would look at which which have that big enough data set. That's a great question as far as, and thank you, Monish, and for folks just to make sure everyone was able to hear okay, this question around the sources of data needed for some of these models, are we actually, do we have to prioritize the use cases for AI based on where we have data to actually properly generate and train some of these models? Gil, do you have some uh, perspective on that? Yeah, I, I do, Craig, and Monish, that's, it's, it's a, Really question, big question that I, I hate to say also begs another question connected to that, which is uh, uh, as much as we talk about big data and machine learning, I don't think we have enough data. And I think a lot of the data that we do have embedded within sites or systems is actually the, you know, the, the it's the, um, 
as they say, you know, people coming back to the scene of the crime. There are people connected to those sites over an extended period of time. And we all know that we have, in, in a way, we have a, um, we've, we have a small percentage of the people we need in the system in order to really conduct effective uh, clinical trials as we go forward. I mean, Craig and I were just you know, riffing at the very beginning of this. We were talking about uh, the, you know, sort of disruptive systems like stuff that works and real world evidence. And, and this is going back to what we talked about earlier. I, I think we need to be much more diverse and inclusive and create uh, systems that invite consumers who are also patients. We're always, we're always people, sometimes patients. I think we need more robust systems that invite people in to share their world, real world experience. And there are platforms like that. One is called um, Belong Life. I think it's the largest single platform of cancer, people with cancer who are sharing their real world experience. Stuff that life, stuff that works is looking at, as Craig knows well, is looking at people with, um, with particularly with uh, many, many unusual or rare conditions. And, and so I think we need to continue to invest in platforms that Sarah is gonna track and find out how much money is going in to create them. I don't, I don't think that the information we have currently is sufficient. One caveat is um, that we need to create a, uh, a collaborative gene in the fragmented health ecosystem. No doubt about it, payers, private payers, um, have a tremendous amount of data. And that's why you know, 15 years ago, uh, companies like Merck would go to Israel and buy data from Maccabi. Uh, I think that model still works. I think it has to work better. I think they have a lot of really good data that's claims adjudication, but I don't think it's enough. Some great conversation happening in the chat as well. Gene mentioning that uh, really likes this idea around AI and ML for feasibility, wants to make sure that we're including inclusion and uh, inclusion exclusion criteria in that type of thinking as well. So as we're thinking about feasibility and study design and what's possible. And Angela really kind of double clicking on this conversation about data quality. Uh, what's the data that we can trust? And, um, you know, reflecting on an interesting conversation there with a, a clinician at the CNS summit from uh, back in November, reminding around this question about trust and confidence in the data going into these approaches. Um, Ritesh, any uh, reflections based on what you're hearing? Uh, yeah, on the data side, I think you're going to see more and more people focusing on this. For example, uh, launched this year, or actually last year, last November, uh, there's an initiative by about 30 academic centers that have got together. The initiative is called Valid AI. And basically what they're doing is they've got a consortium together where they are going to donate de-identified data sets to people who want to then use those data sets for whatever they want to use them for. So imagine you want to get access to the data set to interrogate how many patients there are for a specific inclusion exclusion criteria at UC Davis in Sacramento, because they also have 50% of their population that they serve is the Medicare Medicaid folks, right? You'll be able to do that within, by the end of this year. They're all going to have open API set up where you'll be able to do that. So I think consortiums like Valid AI, I think they're going to be 
uh, I think uh, a week ago uh, at JP Morgan, they announced they added another 20 to 50 uh, academic centers, and the ambition is to be going globally. So I think you're going to see the health systems uh, really look at the, the data that they have and what they can do with it to further either clinical trials or the delivery of care or whatever it is that you want to do. You're seeing the same uh, same thing on the payer side, claims data, right? More and more people are now opening up their claims data sets. Komodo, uh, CareSet has the CMS, Medicare, Medicaid data. Uh, so you're going to see pockets of these happening everywhere where there are use cases for specific data sets that are now being either created or being added to or enhanced that will enable us to deliver things better, right? Find patients faster. And then the third area that we're seeing a lot of use cases is around discovery, early stage, rather than doing the traditional discovery route, let them combination of machines and large language models go out there and say, where's a molecule I can do for this rare disease? You know, form bio in Seattle, that's their all reason for being, is that they're going to use these new tools and technologies to go do early stage discovery for rare diseases. Sarah, as you're hearing this discussion about data and limitations of what can get prioritized for different use cases based on data access, is that kind of a filtering criteria for companies in this market? Uh, do they kind of self-select around use cases where they have data or even differentiate if a company feels they're in a unique position to access certain data? Um, that's a great question, Craig, and, and I think it, hones in on a bit of a point um, and is that many of them are starting to find business cases for that data which which points exactly to what you're talking about as as far as partnering with the companies that have the data but getting back to kind of what Ritesh said um about about the the data that's collected and, and of course what was was also asked about the data quality um, it's it's absolutely critical, um, and it's obviously identified as one of the weaknesses with AI and Gen AI. Um, the large data sets in healthcare is, is are the biases, right? It's fantastic to hear that um, the universities are hoping to to um, get more data, but we have to diversify that data as well. Um, I sit in Europe. People here do not allow their data be, to be shared. Um, it's just um, depending on where you sit in the world. The culture that you're in, um, there is there's a lot of stigmatism to sharing your data. So I think that's really something that has to be a focus is making sure that data is diversified. Um, and Craig, like you said, understanding who has the diverse data sets that can be reliably used. Um, it, it's a, a critical point. I'm so glad you brought that up, Sarah, and especially with the cultural norms and conventions because I'm all in on using the data for the purposes we've talked about today, especially a new way to approach feasibility, patient access. And it's really important to inquire or understand what are the limitations of the data set you're using to base your feasibility on or your protocol design, that's all. You know, a lot of these use cases though, like feasibility, 
does require and benefit from diverse patient data for sure, but a lot of it will also be powered based on um, performance data, uh, intelligence about past trials, our ability to, to have access to diverse trials by different sponsors in a given indication, how different research sites have performed. You know, a lot of this type of data may exist within individual companies and may spark a particular pharma sponsor to think that they're better off developing an algorithm and AI tool in-house and on their own rather than relying on an external partner. Can external innovators access diverse performance data um, that may be needed and where can they get that? Is it from CTMS vendors or other players in the space, Gil? Yeah, I just want to note, um, everybody's been so helpful throwing into the pot places. I, here's another one that may not be on your radar screen, but it's very important. There's a group called, and, and Craig, you probably know them well, UDNF, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, which was launched by the National Institutes of Health with a grant multi-year grant from the government. It comprises 14 of our nation's leading academic medical centers that are looking specifically at undiagnosed diseases and tracking them. So people actually register and share, to Sarah's point, share their data with the UDNF network. And as a result of that, there's, um, there's a, a consistent effort toward moving people from the undiagnosed stage to places where we actually are either discovering new illnesses that we have not yet named to be named, or in fact, finding that people have been misdiagnosed for quite some time. Now, there's quite a bit of patient data there, and it is a group that is incredibly collaborative and eager to work with industry, both CROs, uh, other sites, and of course, the, uh, the biopharmaceutical industry. So I, I think that we're just because of AI, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of potential sources of, of more data. And Craig, to, to kind of talk about the previous question that you had raised about the new pharma companies think they would have better data set. To be honest, the most robust data set is for performance would be the one in investigated data bank. Any sponsor or any company that has access to that would certainly have a leg up as far as uh, performance data is concerned. Yeah, not, a little hard to hear you there, Monish, but I think you were calling out the power of some aggregated data through collaborations where companies are sharing some performance data like the Investigator Data Bank as, uh, as a great example, because patient data is certainly a big part of this, but very often we're looking at the power of performance and operational data that can too easily be siloed within a given company, but not easily accessed so uh, or structured consistently to readily be shared across companies. I see our friend Angela Radcliffe here on stage. Angela, it is always great to see you. Please come on off mute, introduce yourself for anyone who has not had the pleasure. Hi, Angela Radcliffe, uh, formerly head of enterprise data governance at BMS and now run a health uh, tech and data focused consultancy. You know, uh, Gil brought up something really interesting just now around sort of this concept of what the data is starting to expose, whether it's mixed diagnosis and otherwise, but the thing that's really been on my mind um, is, you know, I had had this conversation I referred to in the chat with a clinician at CNS Summit, and the conversation focused around the fact that physicians, especially in the U.S. right now, um, sometimes have to 
do a lot of fancy coding <laughs> and work uh, within the data in their systems to get their patients what they need. So they may have to put a different diagnosis code or a collection of diagnosis codes that might not be completely accurate without context. And so I'm wondering if anyone on the panel or in the audience has uh, seen any work being done around things that we wouldn't consider a normal bias, but maybe some of these sort of unspoken challenges we have around identifying places where the data is not actually going to be reflective because the way or method that we have to collect the data in order for it to achieve a different aim, like payer data, um, is really in conflict with things. Our large language models really aren't going to understand that uh, patients in a certain demographic are consistently in the data misdiagnosed so they can get a treatment option that's not on label for their condition. So, and getting tangible about that, like this would present as somebody looking like they have lupus in the EMR, but really the lupus code was used because the patient has symptoms and might benefit from a treatment that is eligible for lupus patients. Is that what you mean? That's right. And so we might have an entire pool of patients that that are, are on paper being treated for lupus when actually they're being treated for maybe a constellation of other inflammatory symptoms. But the only way to have that treatment approved is to have them coded as such in the system. And so if we go now then uh, to train our data our models on that data, um, we might think we're getting insights about lupus patients, but we're not. Ritesh, uh, any, uh, or Gil, any uh, perspective on uh, Angie's concern being raised? I, I think she's spot on, you know, uh, as, as often. By the way, congratulations on your book and, um, and hitting number one in Amazon. Is that correct in your in the categories? Yes, thanks, Gil. There are many categories, but I'll I'll take it for for the team uh, well. It's, it's, it, 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 <laughs> talking about AI, um, you know, it's it's a it's a great piece of work. Look, I, I think Angela's right. I think the challenge we have with big data, and and this comes down to what we were talking about at the very very beginning. It's 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 um, let let us not think that big data or AI are going to solve our problems because. The data are only as good as the data, and it really is going to rely on expert interpretation and analysis of these data. And you know, you know, junk in, junk out. So I think Angela is right. It's a big concern. And since we are talking about AI, Angela, in the, just our final minute, what is that book that uh, Gil was just referencing to? Because I'm pretty sure it hooks into this AI theme. Oh, you guys are too kind. Uh, I love my network. Um, it's called Quantum Kids, Guardians of AI, and it's about teaching AI literacy to kids aged 8 to 16. Although I'm he hearing anecdotally that people in the aging community are really appreciating learning things so that they can be part of the conversation. So um, thanks for the support. And I hope this does lend to uh, AI literacy. There's a whole chapter on healthcare heroes, which you all are. What a fabulous additional demographic that uh, is so easy to, to see left behind around this. That's great to hear, Angela. Sarah, we're in our final minute. Is there an awesome resource uh, that's top of mind for you that our audience can turn to for more information about, in particular, this, these insights around young companies and trends in this space? 
Thanks, Craig. And um, I'm going to take the opportunity to plug Galen Gross. We released a report last October, I believe it was, Generative AI and Digital Health, Hyperreality, really showing a lot about those numbers, what is actually going on. You, you hear so much about it, and it's JP Morgan, again, you come out with AI, Gen AI. It's, it's a growing field, but it's still, Gen AI in, in health tech is, is very small. So if you want to know the numbers, go to Galen Gross' website, to their research page, and, and download the report. Um, it gives you a lot of good insights. There is so much ground to cover on this topic of AI and clinical trials and healthcare more broadly. I am so grateful to this group for getting this conversation going. Gil Bash, Ritesh Patel, and our new friend Sarah from Galen Growth, all great resources and voices to follow on social, a range of platforms. Next week, we will carry this conversation forward with the fabulous insights of Dr. Dirk Arts, who always has some really uh, progressive um, views, um, but also well-grounded views on where these technologies can go. Moanish and Ange, thanks as always for being such vibrant voices from the community, jumping up on stage with us today. Jane, always great to see you here and we'll regroup next week. Thanks everybody. Thanks, have a great weekend. Thank you all, thank you, Craig and Jane. Bye-bye everyone. Great chatting, thanks so much.